Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Matthew Goodman on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Sun and the Moon, The Remarkable True Account of Hoaxers, Showmen, Dueling Journalists, and Lunar Man-Bats in 19th Century New York. That is quite a subtitle, and it is quite a book. In this book, you will meet uh, rogues and ne'er-do-wells and Edgar Allan Poe and P.T. Barnum and some man-bats uh, and street urchins and uh, ink-stained printers, um, people eating a lot of oysters, a um, famous astronomer, and um, you'll have a rollicking good time, I guarantee you. Uh, th- this is a book that uh, tells a terrific story of the invention of the modern newspaper in the 1830s in New York. And when I say the modern newspaper, I mean something like the Weekly World News plus the New York Times plus I don't know what. Uh, It really will introduce you to a New York and a world of journalism that um, I had really never encountered. Uh, All that and in wonderfully colorful prose brought to you by Matthew Goodman. I enjoyed talking to Matthew today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Matthew. How are you doing, Marshall? I'm very well. How are you today? Uh, doing okay. You're in Brooklyn, is that correct? Snowy snowy Brooklyn, yes. That's right. Is it cold there? Um, it is freezing, and we've got uh, what for us uh, these days is a blizzard, which is about four inches of snow. Yeah, we have a, a little bit more snow than that, and as I was just telling somebody else that what you just described as cold is not cold. When I rode my bike in this morning, it was minus 23 degrees. <laughs> no wind chill. I think it's about positive 23 here. Yeah, so. no, minus 23 degrees. I was like, oh, my yeah. God, you die out here. Um, so anyway, I should tell our listeners that we have Matthew Goodman on the show today, and we'll be talking about his book, The Sun and the Moon, The Remarkable True Account of Hoaxers, Showmen, Dueling Journalists, and Lunar Man-Bats in 19th Century New York. I have to say that when I read Lunar Man-Bats, I was hooked on the book. I mean, anytime you... That, that's the phrase that gets everybody. Yeah, I mean, you listen to that. and Because it reminds everybody of Bat, of Bat Boy, right? I mean, it, it's... I, I think so. Yeah, that hadn't mean, actually been my intention, but I think a, a lot of people sort of caught on to that, the Weekly World News. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly, Bat Boy. I, that's, that's certainly what I thought of. In any event, it's a terrific book. I've read it. It's a, it's a real page-turner, and Matthew has, a, has a, a, a gift for kind of ringing, evocative prose. He, he describes a, a New York that, um, even though everybody has been in New York, you don't know, actually. I was, I was looking through it, and I was, you know, that the New York you describe of the 1830s, I just didn't really know anything about that. And it was an enormous city of 250,000 people. Is that right? It, that's right. It was just over 250,000 people. Yeah. But, you know, that made it the biggest city in the country at that point, actually the biggest city in the continent. Yeah. It's uh, funny because I, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, which has a little over 200,000 people, and we all really <laughs> So there you go. Yeah. It's the biggest small town in America. Exactly. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't believe it. It's absolutely amazing. So anyway, why don't we begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and kind of where you were born and grew up, that kind of thing, anything you're comfortable talking about. Sure. 
Well, let's see. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I live in Brooklyn, New York, um, and my kids are fifth-generation Brooklynites. Wow. Um, so, so we go way back in New York. I was uh, uh, born and raised in the city and the environs of the city, and um, <clears throat> really uh, am sort of ever fascinated by the history of this place, uh, but, you know, both the present and the history of this place. Um, so that was part of what made this book such an exciting um, venture for me, mm -hmm. to sort of delve into the history and describe, as you mentioned, this sort of unknown New York, the New York of the 1830s, which had not been written about very much mm -hmm. um, um, in other books. So uh, let's see, I've been writing for a long, long time. Uh, you know, um, I don't know if I actually consider myself a historian. I'm certainly not a, uh, you know, a licensed historian, uh, you know, <laughs> like a, you know, a licensed plumber or something. Uh, my license uh, right here up on the wall in my office. It's a yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, because you know, my training is really in creative writing. Um, you know, I, I have an advanced degree in, in creative writing as opposed to history, but it happens that history is something that I've always been extremely interested in, and mm -hmm. a lot of my undergraduate work was in American history. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but uh, but I was also always extremely interested in writing. It was something that I've wanted to do ever since I was very very young. I, I wanted to be a writer, you know, from the age of like six or mm -hmm. seven or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so, uh, you know, after college, I, I, I got into creative writing and doing fiction writing mm -hmm. and spent a long time doing fiction, you know, writing short stories and so forth. But even those stories um, were pretty historically based. Mm -hmm. There was always a lot of research that went into those stories, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes to the exclusion of actually writing the stories. I was just so fascinated by, uh, you know, by, by the research. And, um, you know, I eventually got into doing nonfiction writing because of that, that interest in history. And I did food writing for a long time. Um, I wrote a weekly, uh, actually a biweekly column for a, a Jewish newspaper called The Forward, um, mm -hmm. where I was the food columnist and um, wrote, you know, countless columns about um, the history of Jewish food around mm -hmm. the world and describing the cuisines of various Jewish communities all mm -hmm. around the world mm -hmm. and the history of cool. various ingredients and dishes and so forth. And that was really kind of a window. Food was really kind of a window for me to explore my interest in history and culture. And uh, some years back, I guess in 2005, I, I put a lot of that writing together with a lot of the recipes that I had accumulated over the years and, and put out a cookbook which was my first book, um, and that was published by Harper Collins, uh, called Jewish Food, The World at Table, which was about half writing and half uh, recipes, mm -hmm. and uh, recipes from about 30 different communities around the world. Wow, that must have been fascinating to research. It was really fascinating. Um, you know, I was able to travel, you know, a, a good deal um, around the world to, to, to uh visit some of these communities that still exist. Unfortunately, many of these communities don't really yeah. exist anymore and exist only in the memories of the descendants yeah. of these communities. But, you know, fortunately, I was living in New York and a lot of them mm -hmm. live here. And really some of my, my best times was when I would get invited, you know, to the great grand, the Syrian great grandmother's house, you know, and she would, right. you know, teach me how to make various dishes and describe to me the history of them and so right. forth. Mm -hmm. So, um, so when that book came out, I thought, oh, well, I'm pretty much done with, 
food writing at this point. I've pretty much said everything that I have to say in the area of, of food and um, looking around for another topic. And um, I knew I wanted to write something about the history of New York because it was something, uh, you know, that I, I mentioned I'm just so interested in. And um, I was, you know, spent a long time kind of looking around for a topic that both engaged my interest and also was something that hadn't hadn't been, you know, written about. And of course, you know, the history of New York City has been plumbed by so many people before mm -hmm. me. It's hard to find topics that, you know, haven't been covered numerous times. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I was actually just reading the Encyclopedia of New York History, you know, that great magisterial volume that mm -hmm. Kenneth Jackson um, oversaw. And um, I happened to cross an entry that just said moon hoax uh, in quotation marks. And there was this little paragraph describing this moon hoax from 1835. And I thought, my God, what, you know, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it told this incredible story. And then I, I, you know, I went down to at the end of each of these entries, they have a kind of a bibliographic line that that gives the books that the person who wrote that entry got their information from and lo and behold there was no bibliographic line at the end of this entry and I thought my god has nobody written a book about this topic mm -hmm. so of course mm -hmm. I did what every 21st century historian does you know I went to Google mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> you know amazon.com and no one actually had written anything mm -hmm. about this topic, and I said, well, that's my topic. Yeah, no, it's a good one. It's definitely a good one. Um, I should say that uh, if we could just um, talk for a little bit about uh, the literary life. I mean, I know that I, I have a, a lot of friends who are writers, and I have students that want to be writers. The University of Iowa has a big writing program and so on and so forth. Uh, <laughs> and, but actually, um, you know, making a life of it and a career of it is – is uh, is almost as much of it. Well, it's really a kind of craft, and I'd be interested if you would talk to us a little bit about how you, um, you know, made a career as a writer. That's a great question, Marshall. It really is, um, and uh, you know, it's something that I never get asked about, but it's such an important um, topic. I mean, I, I've been, you know, working as a writer for probably close to twenty years now, mm -hmm. um, but for a long time, and especially when I was writing fiction. You know, I kind of had to cobble together a life, had to cobble together a living in the way that I could, you know, and basically I did a lot of, um, you know, sort of hack work. Um, you know, I don't mean to demean it by calling it hack work, but it wasn't the work I would have chosen to do if I had my choice. You know, I did things like, um, you know, I wrote book jacket copy for mm -hmm. um, the MIT Press for many years. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote, you know, ad copy. I wrote textbooks for kids mm -hmm. um, for various educational publishers and uh, basically kept myself afloat for a long, long time, um, you know, as I was trying to kind of make my way as a writer. And it really wasn't until this cookbook um, that I that I finally was able to support myself solely on my creative work. You know, I got a, a pretty decent-sized advance mm -hmm. for that cookbook, and it really kind of opened my eyes. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, I said, my God, I actually can support myself mm -hmm. through books. Mm -hmm. um, and after that book came out and, you know, I hit upon this moon hoax book um, and basic again was very supportive basic books as the publisher. Mm -hmm. and, and they gave me a, you know, again, a, 
a decent sized advance, you know, not the kind of thing that one gets rich on, but mm -hmm. enough to support the research and mm -hmm. the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and so now, um, you know, I, I support myself and help to support my family mm -hmm. by means of writing books, mm -hmm. which I feel very privileged to be able to do mm -hmm. because there aren't that many people who are able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, um, you know, when I'm when I'm looking for new book projects, um, they have to meet some rigorous standards. You know, they have to be both intellectually interesting to me um, and have some sort of political importance because I'm very interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, be um, commercially saleable, mm -hmm. you know, something that I that. I think is going to be something that um, a commercial publisher is going to be interested in in paying and paying for. Yeah. So you know that's the struggle. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and if I could just sort of summarize what you've said. And again, I, I've done a little bit of this myself and ha have written um, uh, commercially, so to say, is that there's a there's a long period of time in which you do kind of scut work, right? But it's still writing work. And you know that there, are, that, you know, there's a kind of trick to every genre you can write in, whether it's book jackets or ad copy or whatever it is, and you can actually find a certain amount of fulfillment in doing that. And also, I, I really like what you said about um, picking your topics carefully when it comes to books, because I, I think most people don't realize the position that commercial publishers are in right now. They, they really do need books that sell. They, you can't, it can't just be the topic that you love. If you want to write a book about the topic that you love, go to graduate school. Um, and we well, that's right. That, that's know. right. I mean, you know, or you know, you can you can you can get a job as a professor or whatever it is, and then you know you can write about whatever you'd like. I mean, I happen to be very interested. I'm just give you one example. I happen to be very interested in Yiddish. Yeah. Uh, the Yiddish language is something that I went back to school and studied. Really? Wow. And and you know speak to some extent. I, I read it better than I speak it. Um, and you know have written about Yiddish and have, have actually written in Yiddish to some extent in the past. Um, and I'd love to write a book um, that in some way partook of my interest in Yiddish, and maybe I will someday. But that's a deeply non-commercial book. Yeah, true. Um, so you know that definitely affects the calculus for me in terms of what projects I choose. It is, it's, you know, again, you, you mentioned Yiddish, and I just want to plug a future interview and recommend a book to everyone. I, I'm going to be interviewing um, Samuel Kasov, uh, who's a professor at Trinity College, I think. Um, and he wrote a book called Who Will Write Our History, which is the, the subtitle is Rediscovering the Hidden Archive from the Warsaw Ghetto. And it's about these Yiddish scholars during the Warsaw Ghetto and how they collected historical materials. And they were also big um, Yiddishists. You know, there was the that, conflict between yeah. Yiddishists and, and, uh, and assimilationists and, and Hebraists. And these people were all big Yiddishists. So we'll be interviewing him in the next couple of weeks. And I'm reading the book now. But one thing I can tell you about the book is it's deeply academic. It's not, uh -huh. it, it is, you know, it's a great book. It's a fantastic piece of scholarship. Um, and actually, the central character in it, a guy named uh, uh, Ringelblum, it w would be a fascinating kind of a, a, a topic. But the book itself, you know, serves a different function, and it's published by an academic press, Indiana. Is that Emanuel Ringelblum by any chance? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. and he and he he sort of put it together, and he was also very politically active, and he you know right. was active in YIVO and the whole nine yards. That's right. Um, I used to work at YIVO. And, oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah, and I wrote I wrote I you know I wrote a uh, museum catalog um, about the Bund, which really yeah. worked for the Bund. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
So again, it's just you know that's the kind of job that one does. Right. But I did I did also want to kind of piggyback uh, on something you said about um, kind of how to find your audience here. Um, and I've worked as an editor a little bit, not as a book editor, but you know, sort of in magazines and things like that. Because one of the you know one of the things that you remind me of is you, you can take a historical topic and write fiction around it and be very successful if you're talented. And the two obvious examples in this case would be um, uh, the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Mm-hmm. By Michael Chabon, and then that other book. Oh, what is it called? Everything's Illuminated. Uh-huh, um, right, right. I mean, right. these are these are books that required a lot of historical research to right. write. I mean, those people right. had to know. Right. Well, I've read both of those books, and they're both terrific books. Yeah. Um, you can go different ways. You can go different ways with it. I mean, you can write fiction um, which has a historical basis, or you can do more like what I was doing yeah. with this book, which is to write history. Yeah using some of the techniques of creative writing or fiction writing to help that yeah. history come alive. Yeah, no, and you do and you do a marvelous job of it. I, I really I really think you do. Yeah, Obviously there's it's a it's a, it's a, it's a terrifically written and very extraordinarily entertaining book. It has a kind of cinematic quality as I was I I'm looking for, hopefully you'll sell the film Right, stuff. <laughs> From your lips to God's yeah, ears. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's good. So why don't we talk a little bit about the book itself? I mean, it is so full of characters that you've heard of doing things that you didn't imagine they could ever do um, mm-hmm. that I don't even know exactly uh, where to start. Um, cause well, it, we could start, start with the hoax itself. Okay, let's go ahead then. Have at it. Well, you know, um, in 1835, the summer of 1835, uh, a newspaper called The Sun, which was the first of the so-called penny papers mm-hmm. in New York, um, the first to kind of challenge the the dominance of the old line of expensive merchant papers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sun published a series of six articles that claimed that life had been discovered on the moon mm-hmm. um, by way of this revolutionary, this powerful new telescope that had supposedly been invented by the eminent British astronomer Sir John Herschel, the <laughs> hydro-oxygen telescope. Um, Demonstrating and, that compound words and words. in Latin <laughs> always mean you're smart. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and by means of this telescope, Sir John supposedly had discovered um, an entire landscape on the moon, you know, that mm-hmm. included, you know, poppy fields and waterfalls and mountains and forests and so forth. And then as his telescope continued, you know, along its way, he discovered uh, life um, of great, you know, increasing degrees of complexity. So, you know, they discovered um uh sheep and hairy bison, and then as the series went along, um, ever more remarkable creatures. So it turns out that Sir John had discovered unicorns on the moon and uh, biped beavers, <laughs> beavers that walked on their hind legs and yeah. had apparently discovered the secret of fire. Um, they had built huts. You saw smoke coming out of these huts. And then most astonishing of all, the crowning touch of the series were these four-foot-tall man-bats, lunar man-bats, uh, Vespertilio Homo, uh, Sir John was supposed to have dubbed them, um, intelligent creatures that, that talked and flew and uh, built temples and did art and fornicated in public, apparently. Uh, although the, sun, the sun did not go into much detail about that. This was the beginning of the Victorian era. Um, and it, these, the series caused an absolute sensation in New York. <clears throat> and... Um, 
you know, people swarmed around the Sun offices night and day waiting to get the next installment of the series. And by the time the series had finished its run, the Sun had become the most widely read newspaper in the entire world, Mm -hmm. Um, not just in the city or in the country, but actually the most widely read newspaper in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, it was a sensational event in the history of the city. Yeah, no, it sounds – well, I I know for a fact that it's absolutely amazing. So why don't we talk a little bit about the origins of these – uh, newspapers themselves, because I, I think that most people don't have a very good understanding of what a newspaper was in 1830. That's right. Um, well, let's see. In the, in the beginning of the 1830s, there were 11 uh, daily newspapers in New York City. There were seven morning papers and four evening papers. Um, but in a city that was over a quarter million, um, they had a combined circulation of only about 26,000. Uh, which wasn't very much. They were not meant for the average men and women of the city. Um, mm-hmm. They were meant for the elite, for the upper crust, as the phrase uh, was then coming into vogue. Um, they cost six cents a copy, which doesn't sound like much to us today, but you know, in point of fact, it was a good deal of money at the time, more expensive than the you know the the artisans of the city could afford. Um, they were meant for the aristocrats, the merchants, and um, the kinds of articles that they published were the sorts of things that merchants would be interested in, you know, ships launchings and uh, commodity pricing and, and the international economic situation and so forth. Um, and uh, that's the way that newspapers were until in 1833 a, a young printer – uh, named Benjamin Day, who was by no means wealthy, he was a you know working class guy, mm-hmm. decided that he was going to create a new kind of newspaper, um, really a revolutionary new kind of paper that wasn't going to cost six cents, it was only going to cost one cent, thus the origin of the phrase penny paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to feature the kind of articles that Day thought, correctly as it turned out, um, most New Yorkers actually wanted to read. So um, it focused a lot on crime stories. They were really the most popular part of the paper, the crime stories. But, you know, uh, sort of shorter pieces, punchier pieces, much more um, local interest than the merchant papers had, um, uh, scandal and gossip, entertainment, sports, um, really kind of the template for local newspapers today you know when we read a good local paper today that has you know local coverage and good sports coverage and entertainment and and scandal and so forth the template for that was really set by benjamin day back in 1833 Mm -hmm. and did um i guess one thing we should say about the content of these papers is is that uh it was important that it be i think as stephen colbert calls it important that it be truthy not exactly true (laughs) well that's right. That's right. Uh, some of some of the stories, you know, seem pretty clearly to be, uh, you know, really fable, almost like fables, really. Um, and I think people understood that. Um, you know, in those days, the whole notion of objective truth or objective journalism that we, you know, look to in our printed newspapers today didn't really develop until later on in the century, not until really the middle of the century do we mm-hmm. have that. You know, At that time, papers 
were highly partisan. A lot of them had been founded by political parties, were were funded by political parties, um, were you know tremendously slanted, and you know people understood that, and we're not expecting to get you know you know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the tr- the truth from their newspapers. They had a you know a much more um, you know, ambiguous relationship to, you know, to the newspaper than people do today. So, um, you know, and that helps to explain some, somewhat the reaction, the ultimate reaction when people found out that these moon stories, you know, were not, were, were not true. They didn't turn away from the sun as people had expected that they would. Um, they sort of, you know, kept on reading the sun throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about the, uh, uh, I guess it's the editor of The Sun, uh, not the right. original editor, uh, but the, I guess the second editor, or was he uh, Richard Adams? Well, he was the third. Uh, Benjamin Day himself was the first yeah. editor, mm-hmm. and then there was a guy named George Wisner. And then um, when Wisner quit um, in the summer of 1835, Day hired a guy named Richard Adams Locke, who was kind of an itinerant journalist. Uh, he was an expatriate British journalist, mm-hmm. um, had come over to New York only four years before with his wife and child. Um, no, you know, not all that much was known about Locke um, before this book. I did a lot of um, research. You know, it's, it's a little bit um, disconcerting for a historian when, you know, you know who your main character is, and he's constantly referred to in the sources as enigmatic. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it means that there's not, not that much known about this guy. Um, and in fact, as I found out, that almost everything that was actually known about him turns out to be not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was said that he was born in New York. That's not true. He was born in Somerset, England. Um, it was said that he was a direct descendant of the philosopher John Locke. That's not true. He was uh, an indirect descendant. Um, it was said that he had gone to the University of Cambridge. That turns out not to be the case. So, you know, there was a lot of misinformation about this guy. But what is known, what was known about him, was that he was a very erudite guy. Uh, he could write extremely well about um, all sorts of topics. You know, he wrote about history, philosophy, religion, uh, science, and so forth. Um, and um, in the summer of 1835, he proposed this series today um, in which the Sun claimed that they had that they were reprinting um, a series of articles from a Scottish scientific journal, the Edinburgh Journal of Science. Mm-hmm. Um, but in point of fact, these articles had been written by none other than Richard Adams Locke himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, isn't it the case, though, that min- much of the misinformation about Locke uh, is uh, due to Locke's own um, creation of his past? Absolutely. Locke was a fabulist. You know, he was a newspaper fabulist in the sense that, you know, he wrote this, you know, incredibly imaginative series of stories. But, yes, a lot of the misinformation about Locke comes straight from the mouth of Locke. Um, Locke was the one who said that he had gone to the University of Cambridge. Um, Locke was the one who said that he was descended from John Locke. Locke was the one who said that his father had served in the Canadian uh, Army uh, or in the British Army in Canada. Um, all of this, Locke was the one who said that he had been born in New York. Um, so, yes, a lot of this information came from Locke himself. Um, he was really a very complicated guy, um, somebody who I came to have a great deal of sympathy for over the course of my my research. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it turns out, he was a political radical. 
um, who uh, had actually been forced to leave England as a result of his political activities. He'd been the editor of a, of a uh, local newspaper in Somerset, his home county. Um, but, you know, he was a champion of Catholic emancipation. He was a supporter of the Republican movement, which was trying to democratize the British political system. As a result of this, he got fired from his job. Eventually, he had to leave England entirely and come to New York. While um, he was at the Sun, he was also um, a, a very um, a strong opponent of slavery, of Southern slavery, mm-hmm. which was unusual in New York in the 1830s. It was hard to find an abolitionist in New York in the 1830s. New York was a very uh, southern sympathetic city, probably the most of, of all the northern cities. Its economy was very tied up with the southern cotton trade. Um, and it was very courageous of Locke to take this, this stance um, while at the Sun. Um, he was almost unique among uh, New York newspaper editors for that stance. So he was a political radical, uh, he was also, as it turns out, a great believer in science, mm-hmm. in the liberatory power of, of, of science, of modern science. Um, <clears throat> and he was a, a religious free thinker, something of a religious dissident, um, sympathetic to Unitarianism. And he was very um, distressed by any attempt by religion to control the free play of science to have any kind of influence over scientific inquiry. He had, as it turns out, a couple of young geologist friends who had actually given up their research uh, because it was inescapably leading them to the conclusion that the Earth was, in fact, millions of years old, mm-hmm. and not just a few thousand years old, as mm-hmm. the biblical scholars of the time yeah. were saying. Um, they gave up their research. Locke found this very disturbing, um, and he was especially he was especially interested in astronomy among the sciences, and he was especially interested, uh, or I, I would say, was especially distressed by the religious astronomers of the time, who were probably the most popular of the astronomical writers of the time. You know, men like Thomas Dick, the Scottish astronomer, and so forth, who believed that the moon was inhabited, and not just the moon, but uh, all of the heavenly bodies, the sun was inhabited. John Herschel's father, William Herschel himself, had been the one to first posit that idea of an inhabited sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the stars, all of the planets, comets, they were all inhabited because God, in his infinite wisdom, would not create these worlds without also creating uh, intelligent beings there to appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Well, Locke thought this was nonsense. And not just nonsense, but dangerous nonsense, because it was distorting the minds of young scientists. Mm -hmm. And so he set out to satirize these ideas. I was going to say, this is the most fascinating part of the entire narrative, and and that is that he didn't uh, intend the story to actually sell copies. Yeah, he intended it as satire. This is really quite amazing. Go on. Yeah, well, I think for Benjamin Day... The publisher, he was pretty interested in selling copies, <laughs> and I don't think Locke was opposed to selling copies. I mean, he was the editor of the paper, but that wasn't his prime intent. His yeah. prime intent was not to write a hoax. His prime intent was to write a satire mm-hmm. of these religious astronomers. You know, he basically said, if they believe in an inhabited moon, I will give them an inhabited moon. And mm-hmm. if they believe that, you know, the, the Lunarians are Christians then I will give them, you know, lunar man bats who build temples on the moon. And I will 
clothe it all in this kind of high-flown, scientific-sounding language that they themselves use, mm -hmm. and in the process expose this for the humbug that it is, for the nonsense that it is. But what he had not foreseen was that the public had been so schooled in the ideas of these religious astronomers that when these articles appeared, they simply believed them. Mm -hmm. They simply believed the articles. They thought they were true. And then when they found out that they weren't true, they derided them as a hoax, when in point of fact, they were neither true nor a hoax. They were a satire. Mm -hmm. And Locke himself was deeply disappointed by the reaction that these articles got. Um, and he described himself to a friend, he confided to a friend that he was, as he put it, the best self-hoaxed man in New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but the papers sold like gangbusters, as you said earlier. I mean, they really they made, they made an absolute fortune uh, for the Sun. Um, did they attempt to repeat this success with other similar stories? Uh, well, uh, to some extent, but... Uh, you know, Locke himself tried to repeat it later on. This is a, a, a somewhat complicated story. He, he tried another hoax some years later, but by that point, uh, uh, you know, fool me once kind yeah. of thing. You know, people um, were not going to fall quite as much for uh, newspaper hoaxes as they had been mm -hmm. this time. But there were newspaper hoaxes that came uh, later over the years. There was a, a story that came out in the Herald some years later that the animals had all escaped from the New York Zoo. Mm -hmm. uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who's another one of the characters in the story, tries his own hoax nine years later in the pages of The Sun um, about a balloon trip around the world. But neither of those stories really um, succeeded. Um, the, the moon hoax was really the one, was, was really the hoax that, that, that had an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell us, um, because there are a couple of other characters that our uh, listeners would have heard about. Uh, one of them is Edgar Allan Poe, uh, my, uh, my, 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 uh, my relative, I guess. Uh, and, uh, the, <laughs> That's uh, right. I yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right. Yeah. Um, is he actually a relative? Uh, yeah, you know, I think all the Poes are related. The Poe genealogy is pretty well worked out. And, uh, yeah, we're not a very savory bunch. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I'm as crazy as he is. It's just I Drug, live in... Drunkards and academics. Well, I live in the era of medication, and he didn't. Um, so, right. so, the, uh, the, the, uh, so Edgar Allan Poe is one of them, and then P.T. Barnum. Why don't you begin with Poe and tell us how he fits into your story? Right. Um, you know, I was amazed once I began to, to, to look into the story to, to find out all these incredible larger-than-life characters who figure in it. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was at the time a young short story writer living in Richmond, Virginia. He was the editor of the Southern Literary Messenger um, uh, literary magazine. Um, and two months earlier, in June of 1835, he had published a story called Hans Fall, A Tale that imagines a balloon trip to the moon. That was full of all kinds of scientific details. Uh, Poe himself, like Locke, was an astronomy buff. He was very interested in astronomy. A lot of people don't know that. And he had recently read um, an astronomy textbook, more or less, by none other than uh, Sir John Herschel. And that had inspired him to write this story, imagining a trip to the moon. But then the hero lands on the moon and encounters you know, these lunarians on the surface of the moon. Um, so Poe published this story and was shocked to discover Two months later, the Sun series. Well, you know, Poe was this incredibly vain, competitive guy, um, and he was convinced that the Sun had plagiarized 
his idea for their own series, and he was irate at the success of the Sun series compared to the you know relative obscurity of his own of his own story. Mm-hmm. He spent years railing against the Sun series, trying to show all of the scientific errors that were in it. And nine years later, as I alluded to earlier, when he when he moved to New York City, his very first order of business, the very first day that he arrived in the city was to march over to the Sun offices <laughs> on Nassau Street and plant his own hoax in the pages of the Sun to prove once and for all his superiority as a hoaxer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, pretty remarkable, and I guess typical of him. He obviously was thinking about it for some years. <laughs> he did think about it for a long, long time. It really bedeviled him for a yeah, long time. That's right. yep. So tell us how P.T. Barnum uh, enters the fray. Barnum, too. Yeah, Barnum was another young guy. These guys were all very young. They were all in their 20s. Locke was 35. He was about the oldest of the crew. Uh, Barnum, I think, was 25. Um, He had arrived in the city um, the very same month, August of 1835, this amazing month, um, from rural Connecticut, from Bethel, Connecticut. He was a would-be showman. He had always wanted to be a showman. Um, And he had with him his first promotion, um, a woman named Joyce Hess, um, an African-American woman, an elderly woman, uh, a slave actually from Virginia, who he claimed was 161 years old. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but was apparently the former nursemaid of George Washington when he was was, in the the cradle. And uh, Barnum plastered the city with, you know, promotional bills about this woman, and he displayed her at a place called Niblo's Garden, which was an entertainment Mm -hmm. spot in New York. You know, he laid her out on a velvet couch, and New Yorkers swarmed to come uh, see her, and, you know, the female Methuselah, as Barnum described her, um, you know, this incredibly wrinkled um, woman, paralyzed in both of her legs, blind, Mm-hmm. Um, and listen to her tell her tales of, you know, the young George Washington. And she told the story of the cherry tree, which in her memory was a pear tree. Um, and um, this was the promotion that really established Barnum in the public mm-hmm. mind as a showman. And amazingly enough, the hoax, for of course it was a hoax, um, would eventually be exposed by none other than Richard Adams Locke in the sun. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's yeah. quite a remarkable story. What, what? Um, let me let me ask you a couple of questions about the uh, the man bats. You said earlier in the pre-interview they get a lot of attention, and I can understand why because they reminded me of two things. Um, mm-hmm. One was, and I'm sure you've heard this before, the flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz. Oh right. Have you? Has people have people mentioned that? You know, actually not. That's funny. But that, don't they though? Because they're simian, you know. Yeah, you said that. I know simian. exactly what you mean. Yeah, I'm like somebody. I always was freaked out by by that scene. Well, of in the course, movie. I that mean was, those things are weird. Yeah, really scary. <laughs> yeah, those yeah. things are totally scary. <laughs> and, and then and then the other thing, of course, is the Weekly World News um, uh, right. Bat Boy. That's probably been mentioned a lot. Are yeah. there any relations between these things, or do they just sort of, or do they just emanate from the popular consciousness and make their way? Yeah, into I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't. I certainly haven't seen any indication that, uh, you know, the Weekly World News Bat Boy was in any way inspired by the the Sun series. I think that, you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, just kind of in the public consciousness. And, and, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, who's going to be living on the moon, well, uh, it's not that difficult to imagine bats living on the moon. Um, You know, of course, in the 20th century, there there was the – 
War of the World, mm-hmm. the Orson Welles mm-hmm. uh, uh, story which uh, or a radio show rather based on an H.G. Wells story mm-hmm. that was really kind of you know the equivalent in its time of the Sun hoax in its time the difference of course was that the the Wells story imagined an invasion mm-hmm. of Martians uh, on earth and of course it led to all kinds of tragic consequences real-life consequences mm-hmm. you know, people killing themselves and so forth um, whereas in Locke's time people were absolutely delighted by this. They were really delighted mm-hmm. to imagine that there was this peaceable kingdom up on yeah. Earth's closest neighbor, you know, because it confirmed for them what they already believed, which is that the moon was inhabited, that mm-hmm. God, you know, that we weren't alone in the universe, that mm-hmm. God uh, um, had given us a populated universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. i tell you one thing that, 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 that these uh, hoaxes remind me of, and, and that is, um, you know, I, I studied the 16th and 17th century as a kind of profession. That's what I'm licensed to do. <laughs> the, uh, and, you know, uh, no, there weren't really newspapers then, but there were uh, various kinds of pamphlets that were given out. I guess they could be called proto-newspapers, but they always dealt in uh, what were at the time called wonders. These were your two-headed calves and your Virgin Mary's uh, appearing in, uh, you know, loaves of bread and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, they were the uh, constant fare in uh, these sorts of publications, and they sold like hotcakes. Uh, and, you know, some of them were astronomical, actually, as well, now that I think about. But it's, it seems to me that there's something in the human spirit that wants to be informed about improbable and marvelous things. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, that we I really enjoy that stuff. I think so. I think there's a sense of wonder. There's a sense that that life can be grander than we had ever suspected um, it it could be. And I think Locke um, keyed in on that. I think mm-hmm. that Locke played to that with this, you know, these wondrous descriptions. I mean, um, you know, part of the, you know, the incredible power of the series was the amazingly detailed descriptions that Locke gave of the lunar landscape and the various creatures that he saw. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know lush, lyrical, beautiful mm-hmm. descriptions. Um, you can't help but fall in love with this world you know, that, that he created on the moon. And they're somehow a little bit more exciting when we think they, when we actually lie to ourselves and think that they might be true. I mean, because you find the same lush descriptions in an Edgar Allan Poe story, which is obviously fiction, but there's right. something more titillating about the fact that it might be true, that it actually might exist in, in some sense. I, I know that one thing that I'm reminded of is Again, this tendency to want to kind of fool ourselves in this way is if you watch the History Channel, mm-hmm. um, and that's just the History Channel, and we're supposed to be, you know, cold, hard empiricists here, but they have lots of shows about the paranormal that's on right. the History Channel, mm-hmm. which by the uh, on my license, it says that we're not supposed to truck in that, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they must have different licenses at the History Channel because <laughs> they have obviously learned they that. They have TV licenses. They have TV licenses, yeah. and, and they've learned that this stuff, you know, basically it's 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 this paranormal stuff and Nazis. Those are the two things you get on the History Channel. That's but right. It, it really is there's something, there's something you know, in, deep in our soul that really wants to wants to believe that there's something beyond what we see and, and, and feel and taste and hear. You know, we want we want wonder of some sort. Well, it's a religious impulse at heart. You know, I mean, I mean, I think that's part of you know why people want to believe in 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 God. You know, they want to believe that there's something uh, magical, that there's something mm-hmm. greater, you know, greater than they are, that there's something you know wondrous, there's something magical in the world. It's funny. It's um, funny. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I know that 
and, and you know the, the debate, the, the discussion that we're having right now about what the wonderful looks like and how we could come to know it um, has been obviously going on for centuries and centuries and, and you know literally thousands of years. And I know that I was raised in a Lutheran tradition, and one thing that's clear in Lutheranism is is Luther just gave up on trying to describe it. He yeah. just said we it is there, but we can't know anything about it. And so really, he was kind of making the point that you're making. He was saying, yes, we need this thing. We need to believe there's something beyond what we see, but we can't know anything about it, which, you know, it's kind of – it makes for boring music, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because the astronomers of the time um, actually spent some time trying to imagine what these creatures actually looked like. Yeah. Um, you know, you did find some speculation in the astronomical literature at that time, you, you, you know um, – Suggesting that the the the, the residents of uh, Jupiter would have enormous eyeballs to compensate for the dimness of the light of the sun, and and uh, one of my favorites is Thomas Dick, this very popular Scottish astronomical writer of the time, kind of the Carl Sagan of his time, um, suggested that the residents, the inhabitants of comets were a race of astronomers because they had such a clear view of the universe that they made their way through the universe. Um, so, you know, these are delightful. Yeah, no, they, they, really, they, really are, they really are delightful. And I think that there's, you know, there's, there's something in just cold, hard fact that we find cold and hard, mm -hmm. and it just isn't satisfying enough for us. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I, I will watch these shows on the paranormal on the History Channel or whatever it is and just feel kind of dirty afterwards. But I, <laughs> I, I really am very interested in it. You know, they'll have one on the Shroud of Turan, or I don't know what it is, you know, some right. some some Kabbalistic, you know, literature that is lost or, you know, so, something that's obviously fiction of some sort. Actually, I was remembering this was like three or four years ago. They claimed they found the tomb of Jesus, Jacob. I guess it was Jesus', Jesus brother, supposedly. And, right. and, and and I looked at it, and I, I remember I was working at the Atlantic at the time, and I sort of looked at the, the guy at the cubicle across from me and I says, the historian in me absolutely knows this is a hoax. <laughs> but I really want to see this. Yeah, thing. Exactly. And I was dead right. It was totally yeah. a hoax. It was totally a hoax. I said, I know this is a hoax. And, you know, but I really kind of wanted to believe that they had found that stuff, you know, biblical archaeology and that kind of stuff, you know, find these things. And it's a, that, that impulse in it is, is really extraordinarily deep. And I mean, I think you do a good job of, you know, it is, I, I want to say it's a, almost a mass hysteria, but it isn't really mass. I feel it very personally that, mm -hmm. that I, that I want to, you know, I, I want to find these things out. And, you know, finding out that there's water on Mars just doesn't do the trick for me. I don't right. know about you, but I'm just like, right. okay, okay, that's, that's great, great, but I just doesn't, you know, that doesn't float my boat. I want little green. I'm reminded of what um, <laughs> so a friend of mine said after seeing the design for uh, the space shuttle. This is many years ago. He said, I want a goddamn rocket ship. I don't, I don't, oh, right. I don't want I don't, that. Yeah. I want that, a rocket that, ship, man. <laughs> that insect-looking creature. Yeah, I don't want – yeah, right, exactly. I want I want something that's pointy and flat, you know, like in, in the science fiction movies. So, you know, I, I really – I don't think that your book does a terrific job of kind of bringing that out. And, again, you know, you're in the checkout stand at the 7-Eleven or whatever, and there's the Weekly World News with something absolutely fantastic on it, and I'm picking that thing up. Well, a lot of this goes back – a lot of that goes back to the sun, the sun in, in the 1830s, you know, both for good or bad. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the good aspects of tabloid journalism, um, you know, it goes back to the sun, and some of the not-so-good aspects go, goes back to the sun as well. Yeah, well, I think, I think one of the things about the free press is you either get all of it or none of it. That's, what mm -hmm. I, that's right. my impression, right. having studied places that – 
tried to have some of it. <laughs> they ended up having right. none of it. Yeah. So um, anyway, Matthew, I want to thank you uh, very much for being on the show today. I really appreciated it. It's a, it's an absolutely terrific book. I should tell our um, listeners that we've been talking to uh, Matthew Goodman, and the, and the book is called The Sun and the Moon, The Remarkable True Account of Hoaxers, Showmen, Dueling Journalists, and Lunar Man Bats in 19th Century New York. And I, I want to uh, close with our traditional final question and, and ask you what you're working on now. Well, um, I am just beginning work on a new project um, about which I'm going to say not that much, except that um, it's another um, story um, about New York in the 19th century, another story about something that is little known but I think has a good deal of historical importance. Um, and it's set in the 1850s, so um, a couple of decades um, after this. And you're not going to tell us anything about it? It's a secret. Um, I no, think okay. I think I I think it's it's even really too early to okay good All to right. get into that yeah, yeah that's great well anyway uh, thanks very much for being on the show really appreciate it and um, when that book is done we will talk to you about it okay oh it's my pleasure thanks so much it was really fun all right take care now bye bye okay you've been listening to an interview with Matthew Goodman the author of The Sun and the Moon the remarkable true account of hoaxers showmen dueling journalists and lunar man bats in 19th century New York. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.